In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. There are a lot of people here today. <laughs> um, I wrote this sermon with like a small group of close friends in mind. <laughs> and there's a lot of you I don't know. So we'll see. Um, sometimes you, you find a text that requires you, at least the way I think about things, to do a certain amount of exegesis, historical work, um, Jewish backgrounds. In fact, Mark does some of that himself in the text. And some texts require you to do the even harder work of sort of examining your own heart. And then you have the sort of trouble of do you expose that to people or do you not? Um, we'll see. Sometimes the gospel comes to us and it delights us. Sometimes we hear about things like eternal life, the forgiveness of sin, and the hope of a better world, and our spirits rise with a sense of wonder and awe at all the goodness and kindness that God has shown us in Jesus, his son. Sometimes the gospels come to us, as it does today, and it devastates us. Let me begin by telling you two things about me as a person. Um, if you'll indulge me, this is going to be a bit autobiographical this morning. Um, the sermon is entitled Crooked Deep Down, and it's about me, not you, so don't worry. <laughs> the first thing I'd like to share with you this morning is that I love fixing complex things, particularly those things that don't involve a manual. I don't want to be told how to do something. I want to figure it out. I want to look at a problem, analyze it, try to come to a solution. If the solution is obvious, it doesn't interest me. I want to be challenged. I want to have my brain stimulated. I want to apply whatever God-given intellect and rationality I have to some particular situation where things have come out of order, and I want to set them right, bring order back. I like to fix things, and my general inclination is to think that there isn't a problem I can't solve. The second thing I want to share with you about myself is that, generally speaking, I think of myself as a good person. Some of you may disagree. Um, I had a sentence here where I said, if, if any of you disagrees, you can see me after the sermon and keep your, your opinion to yourself. <laughs> um, some of you may disagree, and that's okay. But you're still going to have a hard time convincing me that I am not, on the whole, all things considered, a good person. Am I perfect? No, of course not. Do I have faults and struggles that I am trying to work through? Of course. They don't really make me a bad person, do they? I mean, they don't let bad people preach. <laughs> Wheaton and Trinity, they don't hand out degrees to bad people. I've been faithfully married to my wife for 12 years. Except for a few years in high school, I've never had any serious rebellious stage. I've never walked away from the Christian faith in which I was raised, and all I want to do for the rest of my life is teach people about Jesus. Despite, despite my faults, I think I am a good person, 
or at least I am able to convince myself that I am. But it's just at that moment, just when I am able to convince myself that I am a good person and I have my checklist made and there's more boxes on the right-hand side than there are on the left, it's just at that moment that the gospel comes and it devastates me. I want desperately to be able to justify myself according to external standards because I know the alternative. Give me the checklist. Tell me what I need to do and I can do it. That's the kind of person I am. I'm a good person. I want to be a good person. The gospel will have none of it. Human beings have an innate need to self-justify. And in the face of my self-justification, at the moment when I'm looking at the checklist and patting myself on the back because I don't drink excessively and I don't smoke and I don't abuse my family, the gospel comes to me and says, there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. For from within, out of a person's heart, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, Envy, murder, pride, (coughs) foolishness. From within, not without, from within. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. My entire checklist for morality deals with things that are external. But the real problem the gospel tells me, in fact, as all of Israel's history tells me, is that I am crooked deep down. Have you ever tried to listen to your own heart? Not the sound it makes as it pumps blood through your body, but to all the wickedness it gives rise to. All of those things that we we try desperately to block out of our mind all of those things that enter our thoughts, that if anyone ever heard them, we would be done, devastated, crushed, ruined. Again, this is about me, it's not you. But when I hear Jesus say, all these things, all these evil things come from within, I know exactly what he means. Thanks be to God that none of you will ever hear the thoughts that enter my mind. At some point in our life, we develop a filter, a way of stopping ourselves from saying every word that we think and committing every action that comes to mind. And then at some point later in life, we start to believe that filter has somehow made us into a good person. The filter, however, is like the law. It is not the solution to the problem. It is at best a stopgap measure. My heart, my mind... Continue to be corrupt. Liturgical clothing, the right schools, the right church, having the right friends, going through an ordination process, whatever the case may be, none of these things can change my heart. 
We try our best to deceive others, to make sure that no one ever hears the true desires of our hearts, but in the silence we hear them. In the silence. I hear my heart. From within, out of a person's heart come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, murder, pride, and foolishness. Those little sins we commit each day that no one sees, those thoughts that enter our minds but are certainly never acted upon, those are not the exceptions to the otherwise general truth that we are good people. On the contrary, they are evidence of a deeper and darker corruption. They are proof that something deep inside us has gone askew and that try as we might to cover it up, to suppress it, and to pretend it isn't there. We are broken deep down. And we certainly do try to cover it up. That's the only reason I could say to you at the beginning of this message that I think of myself as a good person. It's because out of the human heart comes deceit, and nowhere is that deceit stronger than when I am deceiving myself. Self-deluded, the wickedness of the human heart allows me to walk through life day by day, comparing myself to others and assuring myself, almost irregardless of what goes on in my own life and mind, that I am okay. You're okay, Mike. You're a good person, it whispers to me softly. Don't worry about that. At least you're not having affairs like some people. At least you're not out at the bar drinking every night like some people. Don't worry about it. You're okay. It is astonishing to me that I am able to construct a vision of reality which so strongly assures me of something that I know deep down to be untrue. I know I am broken. I know my heart is self-deceptive. I know I want to be judged by external standards because if we start judging by internal standards, I'd be damned. So that's the problem. It's not the things outside me that make me impure, but my own heart. And despite my best efforts to cover it up and to make sure none of you ever see it in my own mind, sometimes just for a moment, I hear the truth and it condemns me. But as I said, I like problems. And this is a hard one. This may be the hardest problem of all. So what do I do? How can I fix this? How can I deal with this defiling heart of mine? I can't. As soon as I have identified what the real problem is, the gospel once again comes in and devastates my best efforts. If my problem is my heart, then there is nothing I can do. The one who restores the human heart is God, not me. But thanks be to God that he has promised to do just that. This is the promise of the new covenant, the new exodus. In Deuteronomy 30, it says, The Lord your God will have compassion on you, and he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord has scattered you, and the Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed, that you may possess it. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring." So that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. 
The Lord your God will do it. In Jeremiah 31, it says likewise, Behold, the days are coming when I will make a covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. I will put my law within them, and I will write, my, I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. So also, Ezekiel 36, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. In all three texts, the restoration of our hearts is God's work, not ours. The gospel does not allow us to fix our deepest problems on our own. That is God's work. I wish it was immediate. I wish it was instantaneous. That we were just transformed. But that doesn't seem to me to be how God typically works. So if there is nothing we can do, does that mean we can do nothing at all? No. First, for those of us who are in Christ, we can be confident that as Paul says in Philippians, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. I wish he would bring it to completion now, but as I said, this is God's work, not mine. It is happening in me and you according to his own purposes and plan. Yet we can be sure because God is faithful and just and because in him, in Jesus, all the promises of God are yes, that God will not abandon us. God will not abandon this project he started in the depths of our heart. Second, while we should be confident that what God has begun in us, he will bring to its completion we should also pray that more and more of God's rule would enter into our hearts and that more and more in our hearts and lives God's will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. In short, we need to pray the Lord's Prayer, not just as a prayer in general for the world, but even more so as a prayer for the darkness of our own hearts. In my heart, Lord, Thy kingdom come. In my heart, Lord, thy will be done. Forgive me, Lord, for the trespasses that come from my hard and darkened heart. Keep my heart from temptation. Deliver my heart from evil. Let your kingdom, power, and glory extend over the whole earth and especially into the farthest corners of my heart, both now and forever. That should be our prayer. Third, we should confess our sins in penitence and faith, not only to God, but to one another. Now, I don't mean that we should run around telling everyone our deepest and darkest desires. What I mean instead is that with those we trust, those who love us and will always have our back, 
there can be something freeing about total honesty. If my wife doesn't know what's going on in my heart and mind, then she doesn't know how to pray for me. She doesn't know how to help me. She doesn't know how to encourage me and strengthen me. This is, at the end of the day, a communal work, not an individual one. God isn't just working in my heart or your heart, but in all of our hearts. The peace we offer each other isn't peace between two good people, but peace between two people who know that the other has has a hard heart and offers them peace nonetheless. Those who want forgiveness and peace must be about the business of offering peace and forgiveness to one another. Fourth, the promise of a new or restored heart is, as we read in Jeremiah, a new covenant promise. And so we should celebrate the new covenant meal for the people of God. We come to communion today and every Sunday not because we are super spiritual, not because we have it all figured out, and not because we happen to be at all souls, and this is what people do at all souls. We come to communion because we know ourselves to be sinners in need of divine grace. We come because we know ourselves to be sick and in need of a physician. We come because we believe that the work we need done in our hearts is the work that only God himself can do. Sometimes the gospel lifts us up, offering us visions of a new world, of peace, of forgiveness, and sometimes it cuts us down. Sometimes it reminds us that we are sinners in need of forgiveness. Sometimes it exposes us for who we really are, despite how hard we try to hide that fact from ourselves and each other. Unfortunately, or perhaps fortunately, we do not get one side of the gospel without the other. I am a sinner, and down in the depths of my heart, I am not a good person. And the gospel is for those kind of people. I need confession. I need the offer of peace from all of you. I need forgiveness. I need the Lord's Prayer. And I need the new covenant meal. Thanks be to God that he who began a good work in us will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. And maybe, if we're lucky, just a bit sooner. Amen. Amen.